Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. On this particular weekend, think of those we just pass over Memorial Day. But there are those for whom it never passes over. When for the rest of us, we forget and have moved on. There's no moving on. It will always be there. And I pray that your goodness would come through to them today. Be the God of all comfort. Be the God of all compassion. Be the God who sees. Be the God who is near. Be the God who provides. Be the God that you have claimed to be and said to be and always proven yourself to be. Show your goodness. Show your goodness to these families and friends who've been left behind. And Lord, center us today in your goodness, the goodness of your heart, the goodness of your character the goodness of your word, the goodness of your promises, the goodness of what you will do and have done are going to continue to do for us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say it together. Amen and amen. I hope you're enjoying the goodness of God this morning, are you? God is good. I said I hope you're enjoying the goodness of God this morning. I, I don't know. I am. He is good. And you must know that he's good. If you're here on Memorial Day weekend, you've figured out that though a day on the lake is great, God is even greater. Uh, another round of golf, there's nothing wrong with another round of golf necessarily, but if it keeps you from God, there might be there's uh, something even better about God than a round of golf or a day of fishing or whatever this weekend might bring to you. Today, um, uh, my name is Dave, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, glad that you're here. Uh, I assume that on Memorial Day weekend, we're talking primarily to the faithful. That's, that's kind of what it is. You're not, you know, on the way to your next endeavor right now, stopping in at the largest Bucky's in the world. Did you know that we have the largest Bucky's in Tennessee in the world? You know what Bucky's is? No? It's like this massive, like, Costco of gas stations that's an experience in itself. It's like a, it, it, I don't know, it's the Disneyland of gas stations. It's something, I don't know. You just head straight east of here. You walk into to Bucky's. I'd never been until this weekend. Walked in, I got to meet Bucky himself. I have a picture of me with Bucky and a sticker that I almost wore. Just, uh, just kidding. Holly dared me to, but I didn't. She said, you're really getting a picture with Bucky? Yes, I'm getting a picture with Bucky today. I had, had a great time doing that, but uh, back here for a Sunday morning. You're here. Thanks for your faithfulness. Thanks for the sacrifice you're giving. I think that makes it a very appropriate day to talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about. You know, this weekend presses us in a way to think about mortality, doesn't it? If we think about what it's really about, we're paying attention to the fact that some have paid the ultimate cost for us to have the freedoms we have, but that brings us face to face with the fact that even if that wasn't given voluntary, voluntarily, wasn't taken from us tragically, at some point in time, you and I are going to die. I hope you face that. If you haven't already, that's, that's coming, and coming sooner than we want to think. And when we die, there's something interesting about dying. There's a strange violation of our privacy when we die. Have you paid attention to that before? 
When you die, there's this strange violation of your privacy that occurs. Things that were hidden come out in the open. Things that were tucked away get untucked. Things that you thought weren't anybody else's business all of a sudden become all kinds of people's business. You know, I've had a great inspirational value in my life of reading Christian leaders' journals over the years. And it just dawned on me this weekend. I don't know why it never dawned on me before. They never meant for us to read those. They were writing their own personal thoughts and their own personal wrestlings and their own personal struggles and their own personal prayers. And now here we are, you know, thousands of copies, 500,000 copies sold, 3 million copies sold, the New York Times bestseller, and all of it that we're reading, <laughs> we're reading their little private thoughts. Or that great book uh, from uh, Anne, Anne Frank's personal diary. Well, she never thought we would be reading about her secret crushes as she was hiding from Nazi Germany. Those were her own private thoughts. And now we're all reading them. When you die, people are going to go through the places where you've stuck things that you don't want others to see them. They're going to find those things. I have a friend, it's kind of a funny one, but I have a friend who has something in her purse. Wherever she goes, I won't say her name, not to uncover her little secret. But she shared with us one dinner, we're having dinner with our families, and she said, you know, I have an emergency donut in my purse at all times. <laughs> now, I'm not sure what constitutes a donut emergency, but apparently she, she is anticipating at any given time, on any given day, she might have a donut emergency. And it's not like a, 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 a wrapped little Debbie donut. No, this is like... Donut she got from the donut shop that day, wrapped up in a paper towel, stuck down in her purse. Uh, <laughs> so I just said, I hope this never happens to her. But I had this funny thought that she might have some cardiac, cardiac emergency. You know, she's wheeled in unconscious into the, into the hospital, and the nurse reaches into her purse to find the identification, and her fingers come out with frosting all over them. I mean, just uh, how ironic that would be. A, a donut emergency hidden away in her purse. Now, that's kind of a comical one, but we have all kinds of things tucked away in all sorts of places. People come to funerals and find the secret family. They, un they open up the finances and find the addiction or the compulsion or the membership that never should have been held. There is a strange violation of our privacy when we die. One of the things that often gets uncovered is the financial health or lack of health of the person we were related to. Now, financial health isn't everything, but it is one thing. In our house, we have a little drywall spot, spot on the drywall, you know, just the wall that's painted, and we've marked on it with pencil the last few growing years of kids in our house and some that aren't in our house, but they're in our house often enough, they might as well be. As, you know, their parents say, we just send our kid home. So we've marked out all of those little growing spots on there. Now, height isn't the only measurement of your growth, right? It's not the only measurement of your maturing, but if for some reason it's be low where it should be at the time in life where you're at, doctors want to check in and make sure your growth isn't stunted for some reason. That's kind of how I think of our financial health, that it's actually a marker of our spiritual maturity. It's not the only marker, but it is a marker, if we slap a ruler on the top of your stewardship life and it's below where it should be for your time and place in your Christian journey, then we should ask if for some reason your growth has been stunted. 
Today, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to bring your paper Bibles whenever you can. Prevents a lot of distractions, at least for me. I find that when I fail to do that, I'm often going through other things I don't need to in church myself. So if you do have a phone or a tablet, you're welcome to turn them on or the, or the scriptures would be on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't know where that's at, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If you go to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you're too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I just want to read this passage to you where Paul is describing a group of very mature Christians on the basis of their giving health. Listen to what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, he's writing to Corinthians. That's the city of Corinth in Greece. Macedonia is the neighboring nation just to the north and the east. So he's writing to neighboring nations, and he says, I want you to know about the graces that have been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, pay attention to that phrase. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and, pay attention to the next phrase, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. He's taking up an offering for those Christians who are hard-pressed in a difficult situation from churches all around the ancient world, and they're participating in this giving for the relief of the saints, as though they didn't have things going on. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you, to the Corinthians, this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Or as the NIV translates it, see that you excel also in the grace of of giving. Now, this has been kind of a summary of the life of the Macedonian Christians in brief in their giving history. And here's what's true. They're dead. This is the only thing we know now about that group of Christians, by and large, except for the book to the Philippians. Most of what we know, this little section right here is sort of the epitaph on the tombstone of the Macedonian Christians. Can I summarize it for you, Lisa? The first stab, what I think is sort of on the epitaph, the inscription on their tomb. Here lie graceful givers. That's what I'd call them. Graceful givers. They made giving look easy. Now, embedded in this passage about the most spiritually mature Christian, if you pay attention to it, you reflect on it, and you think what's behind it, there are five levels of giving that Paul is eliminating, basically saying they're not here, although some are, they're not here, although some are, they're not here, although some are, they're not here, although that's wonderful, and some are there, they're actually beyond all of that, here's where they are in level five, giving Uh, level number one, I have some bikes here, but this is pre-bike. Giving level one is pedestrian. It's giving out of excess. It's just like learning to walk. Giving level number one is giving out of excess. 
That's just learning how to walk. So when a, a, a child takes their first step and they're very, very, very young, you're excited about it. If I came to you and said, hey, I can walk, you wouldn't be terribly impressed. Now, if something tragic had happened to me and I lost my ability to do it, and then I called you and said, hey, I, I can walk again, you'd be excited. But right now, that wouldn't mean much to you. It's normal to be able to walk. It's human. You don't need any empowerment to accomplish that from any external means. Giving out of excess. Secular people, unbelieving people, do this. You're driving up to the intersection and you have some extra change in your drink holder. So you grab the change, roll down the window and toss it into the bucket or the cup. You're walking up to the cash register. They say, that'll be fourteen ninety-five. Would you like to round it up for such and such and such and so? You don't even hear what such and such and such and so is. You have no idea what the organization is, but you just say, sure, why not? It's just five cents. I have extra. So you, you round it up. Giving out of excess, there's nothing magnificent about that. That's not where the Macedonian Christians were. Listen to what it says. uh, The grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia in a severe test of affliction, probably facing persecution, not unlike the Jews right before World War II, businesses being boycotted, names being maligned, justice not being given simply because they were Christian. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty. They're not giving out of excess. You know, my favorite uh, candy to go into a movie with is a bag of Twizzlers. I don't know why I love Twizzlers so much. I'm not even sure what those things are. I, I think it's like softened plastic with red dye number, whatever it is, and just a, a, a melted sugar poured in there and just a touch of crack cocaine or something. I don't know. But they're really, really, really good. Something about those Twizzlers. Now, when I first come into a movie and my family's all with me, there's five of us, and I got a whole bag of Twizzlers, and they got some popcorn, and we're 15 minutes in. I'm feeling generous. I had a whole bag of Twizzlers. Hey, anybody wants to anybody Twizzler? Twizzler, anybody? Anybody want a Twizzler? Now, when we're halfway through a Marvel movie, which is about three eternities long, the bag of Twizzlers wasn't designed to last for three eternities. It seems to only be designed to last for half of eternity. I've got four Twizzlers left, and there's five of us, and I'm looking down the road. You know what I'm feeling now? Stingy. I'm not feeling generous in neighbor right away. If I hand this out and everybody takes one, there'll be none for me. There won't be any left for Dave. Now, how many Twizzlers does a man need? Like zero. Like there's no actual need for a Twizzler, right? I'm, you're already in excess the moment you think about a Twizzler. But it's human nature, to want to have the excess be excess. The actual literal word here is uh, surpluifage or something like that. They tried to translate it. It made some word, surplusage, that's what it was. Surplusage of things. <laughs> they don't have a surplusage of things. They have the opposite of a surplusage of things. Giving out of excess, there's nothing miraculous about it. When a billionaire gives $2 million, great. They started the scholarship for underprivileged kids. Way to go. That's less than 0.2% of what they have. If they have a standard drawdown of 4.5% yearly, that means they're giving less than 5% of their income if they earn nothing more at all. But I know how billionaires get to be billionaires. It's not by not earning more. 
nothing impressive about that. The next phase is really sort of preschool years. Isn't this a great, beautiful, classic radio flyer bike? Courtesy of Olivia Brakey. Thank you for giving this to us for the, the day. Olivia, I know you love it very much. This cute little bike. You know how kids ride these things? You ever watched a preschooler get on a, a tricycle? They get on a tricycle like this and it's a burst. Real fast and they stop and then real fast and then they stop and then real fast and then they stop and they're done with it for a while. It might be three days before they touch the tricycle again. Giving level two. Giving out of guilt. Guilt is a good short-term motivator, but it's not a long-term motivator. It will lead you to spurts of giving, stops and starts. You'll burn for a moment, and then you will burn out for a moment. But it's a phase you actually have to go through. Why? Because as you heard earlier, to not give is an act of disobedience. Therefore, you should feel some level of guilt, which is the initial turning point for you to repent. And often, Christians, they move from this giving out of excess then to giving out of guilt. But you know what I've noticed about this phase? It's not a long phase. Not very many parents in the room still have tricycles around, even if they still have kids. It's a pretty short window of time if growth is moving along the right way. Guilt, then, will never get you to where you need to go. But the Macedonian Christians weren't driven by guilt. It's a phase, but they weren't stuck there because it says in a severe test of affliction, verse 2, their abundance of what? Joy, not guilt. Their abundance of guilt and shame. Their abundance of legalistic duty. Their abundance of religious commitment. No, their abundance of joy. They weren't giving out of guilt. Now, if you need a spark of that for a moment, it's not wrong for the Spirit to convict you. It's not wrong for someone who's discipling you to confront you. It's not wrong for someone in your family to ask a question, but guilt won't get you to where God wants you to be. Giving level three, then, is giving out of obedience. Verse 3, it says, for according to their means they gave, and as I can testify beyond their means of their own accord. Verse 4, moving on, begging us earnestly for the favor. Notice again, it's not guilt for taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves, catch this catchphrase, first to the Lord. Now, the, the believers in the, in the early church did not have the New Testament. They only had the Old. All of their sermons were coming from the Old. That's what eventually gave us the New Testament. So they were following the law, but through the lens of Christ and grace. So it, the Sermon on the Mount is the beginning point for understanding that. Jesus tells us nothing will be abolished from the law, but it will be fulfilled. In other words, it will be fulfilled beyond what the law would get us to, following the Spirit and grace leads us somewhere that the law never could. But it is clear in the law that giving a tenth of our income is the standard rule of thumb God wanted us to begin with. Giving then out of obedience is like this bike right here. This beautiful princess bike. Thank you, Jeff and Kat, for letting me borrow this. It's a bike with training wheels. Now, uh, at one point in time in my life, I lived in a trailer. Uh, so I get to say this. 
one way to train kids to go is to just stick them up on a bike with no training wheels, give them a little shove as they go down a hill and say to yourself, well, if they fall down, that'll learn them. That's sort of the Tennessee trailer version. Teaching kids how to ride, I'll shoot, that'll learn them. That's not necessarily the best way, though, to get a kid to ride a bike. Most parents put training wheels on the bike. Why? If they go a little too far out of balance, it catches them and shows them that's too far to the right. If they go a little bit too far the other way, it catches them and shows them that's a little out of balance. As they, as they become more adept at riding the bike, you raise those training wheels a little bit. They can go a little farther, but they still get caught. That's what the 10% rule is supposed to help us do. Sometimes new Christians, they just want to give everything away. They love Jesus so much and he's done so much for them, they want to give everything. They're throwing things at people. And they say, oh, the rich young ruler, I, I, I must be the rich young ruler. I'm going to give everything away. And they have nothing left to care for their family because they've been all too giving. They go one side. Then there's other new believers who just say, oh, there's no law anymore and I can do what I want and freedom, freedom, freedom. I'm not going to give anything. My daughter, my second daughter, Zoe, she's uh, She's 17 now. She gave me permission to share this story. We, all of our growing up time with our kids, we've taught them to tithe. And when they got their little allowance, we told them to set aside in a container of some kind what they were going to give to the Lord. We're not going to check on it. We're only going to remind you about it. It's between you and God what you give. But we encourage you to practice tithing. So all of those growing up years, she did practice tithing. And it wasn't until she was 15 that she realized that tithe meant 10%, not 20%. So all of those years, she'd been given 20%. We just thought everybody knew what tithe meant. I don't know why we thought that. We thought we'd explained it. She didn't know. 20% all this time she's been giving. Then 15, 15, just two years ago, she said, wait, it's 10%? <laughs> I've been given 20. Does Jesus owe me back? <laughs> Does he give interest? <laughs> that little guiding rule of thumb helps you make sure you're not giving too much. But as you know, when we tip, she told me this today, when we tip, we give 20%, Dad. That's interesting. And if you add up all the tithes and offerings in the Old Testament that most faithful Jews gave, if they followed everything God commanded them to do, it ended up being more about 22 23%, most scholars estimate. But the 10% rule is a guiding beginning point so that we don't get out of balance while we're getting our finances and stewardship in order. If your finances are out of order, you probably can't do 20%. But that's out of obedience. And there's other giving levels that this doesn't fulfill. We know they did because it says they gave first to the Lord, which for us, in our context, to give to the place that's ministering to you spiritually, relationally, emotionally, the best thing that we have compared to that is the local church. That's why we practice as members of Bethel 10% storehouse tithing. That's what everyone learns in their membership class here. Out of obedience to the Lord and lordship to Christ, it's a beginning point. Giving level Oh, let me stop for a second, actually. I want to say something just in case you're where I think some of you might be. God's not after your money. He's after your heart. 
Uh, don't get stuck on the wrong thought, because I think you might right about now. God's not after your money. He's after your heart. The problem is he knows your money already owns it, and he's got to loosen the grip that the idol of money has on your heart if he's ever going to get your heart to be fully his. When we get baptized in these tanks, we don't hold our wallet above the water. When we get baptized in these tanks, we don't leave our bank account out of there, our stock, whatever, our career out of Everything goes under the water because that's a symbolism that everything is under the lordship of Christ. He's not after your money. He's got plenty of money. What's money to God? But he knows if he doesn't get some of your money, he won't get any of your heart. Whenever my heart isn't aligned with something that God's heart is aligned with, you know what I've learned? Throw some money at it. Because then some part of my heart goes with the money and it's like it gets stuck to that thing. If I'm not worried about people starving, throw some money at people starving because then my heart gets ripped out and goes with the money and then my heart is over there with where it should have been, where God's heart is. Broken for those who are broken. Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your there your heart will be also. Do you notice the cause and effect? It's not where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He says, no, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If your heart's in the right, wrong place, throw money in the right place. Watch it change. He's after your heart. All right, giving level number four. It's not out of obedience. It's giving to our ability. Chapter 8, verse 3 says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. Giving to our ability, then, would be like learning to ride a 10-speed bike. Man, I remember when I got this kind of bike, I don't know, 11, 12 years old, a 10-speed bike sure felt like freedom. Do you remember that? Could go wherever I want, ride with a pack of guys like a pack of wolves to whatever section of town we wanted to go. You had two friends that you could reach in your neighborhood by foot. You had 15 to 20 friends that you could reach by bike. Man, was it freedom. We took these all the way to the edge of legal territory, jumped the fence and went beyond, you know. That's what a bike meant for us back then. It's freedom because we can. It harnesses the ability of your body and moves it with greater momentum than it would have been able to go before. I wonder if you recognize these three names. Colgate. You recognize that name? Colgate, as in the toothpaste? Kraft. Like Kraft, you say it. Mac and cheese. Or Heinz. Ketchup. All three started by devoted Christians. All three decided they would start as tithers. They did. As their business began to be established, they felt like God was impressing them to do more. They found creative ways to give both within and through and outside of their business. They, st- they really moved the envelope in workers' rights and workers' well-being. They, they were the starting point of that uh, clean food and drug act that makes us feel confident when we go to the store. They were living at the same point in time when Upton Sinclair wrote his book, The Jungle, about a meatpacking plant that made nobody want to eat meat ever again that came from anywhere in North America. But they had pristine factories. They had health care for workers. They had time off that nobody else was thinking of. And they moved from 20% tithing to 30% giving to 40% giving to 50% giving. As God gave them ability, they kept ratcheting up the gears on their giving bike and they started flying and giving until the time when they died, all three of them were near 100% tithers.
Because they decided not to give by a rule, but to give out of joy. And as much as God gave them ability, they were going to keep giving because it gave them more purpose and fulfillment and significance than money ever could. That's the giving out of your ability. But the very next phrase in the passage says, they gave out of their ability, and as I can testify, beyond their means. How do you give beyond your means? How do you give beyond your ability? That's the next level of giving. It's giving like God. Because God helps you give in a way that only God can help you give. If walking is giving out of excess, if tricycling is, is, is giving out of guilt, if uh, training wheels is giving out of obedience, if a 10-speed bike is giving out of our ability, this little video I want to show you next is what giving like God is like. Watch what I mean by giving like God. He's trying. He's on his giving journey. Now he's got it. This is Danny McCaskill, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Danny McCaskill on the bike. Look at his joy on his face as he messes it up. Man, he was trying for something good. Now watch this. Oh, shut up. Are you kidding? Danny McCastle. Can you get up for him? Come on, that's fun. Isn't it fun? You see him on that journey of trying to make some things work. He doesn't quite get him right the first time. If you watch all of the Danny McCaskill videos, you know that he has so much joy and he works hard at trying to... He does something that he's gifted to do that most humans don't even think is possible with a bike. When he just gets on a bike, something miraculous seems to occur. That's what I want to suggest the level of giving is that the Macedonian Christians were at. And here's why they got there. Key principle for you to know. Money can never give the kind of joy generosity can give. How does money get a hold of our heart in the first place? It makes us promises it can never fulfill. Oh, you want belonging, just get more money, then you'll have more friends. Oh, you want significance, keep working harder, keep striving harder for success and status, and then, then you'll be significant. Oh, you want comfort, oh, you want pleasure, oh, you want a feeling that life is really alive, you don't want to feel dead anymore, you want to feel alive. And money makes all of these promises that it never delivers on, and the more you chase it, the more you want of it, and the more discontent you become. As a matter of fact, money, in my mind, is like a mirage in a desert of discontent. On the horizon, you just think, boy, if I could get that, then I'd finally be happy. And you get into the mirage and you realize that's all it was is a mirage. It doesn't deliver on the promise it gave you. And now you're looking for the next horizon and you think, well, then if I could just get that, then I'd finally be happy. And then if you get it, God help you if you get it, there you are in the mirage and you thought it would be an oasis and it's not an oasis. You're still living in the desert of discontent. Money will leave you forever wandering in the desert of discontent. 
It cannot satisfy what your soul was designed for because you're designed to be like God and he is not a discontent being. He is a content being. He is not a stingy being. He is a generous being. He is not a being who's worried about what's coming next. He is a being who is concerned about what others have next and that generosity in God is the only thing that will satisfy you. It's the only thing that will put you in a place of your purpose and your calling and your fulfillment and your significance and your joy and your belonging and all the things money promises you only come from God. That's why Jesus says you can't serve money and God both. You can only have one master. Either you'll love one and hate the other or you'll do it the other way around. The generosity of God is the only thing that can solve the discontent of the human soul. If you don't believe me, chase the mirage. Come back in 10 years. I'll weep with you. It's not what God wants. Don't you want to give like God? The next 90 days, starting next week, we're going to launch what we're calling a tithing journey. We understand that people sometimes start here, sometimes move there. We're asking all of you, if possible, to pray and let God help move your heart in a direction where you get to here. At least get to here. Giving out of obedience. I don't get a raise from that. I'm not getting a new car from that. I know there's some wacko pastors out there who are doing all kinds of false prophet crazy stuff. There's no private plane. You can come visit me in my tiny little townhouse that's unremodeled. I'd love to have you there. You can drive with me in my 2012 Chrysler Town and Country or my 2016 Kia. From between our four drivers, that's what we got. I'm not getting anything out of this except your soul free of the idol of money. And that's what we need. But if you're already there, I want to encourage you to keep pressing in towards giving like God. Let me just pray for us as we close. Lord, thank you so much for modeling to us generosity. Not just in the world you gave, in the resources that are in it, but in your personhood, giving up all the riches of heaven and the glory there to become forever human, fully divine and forever human, to suffer everything we suffered, paid every price we should have paid, to die the death we should have died in our place, that we can live forever with you and the only reward that will last, the only reward that will satisfy your loving presence. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name.